So you'll remember that we've been, we've made a start on this uh, sermon series, walking our way through from the very first chapter of Genesis, and I suspect we will make it all the way through to the very last chapter of Revelation. And not that we'll do every chapter in between, you understand, but on the way, we're tracing the narrative, the story of God's promises. We're looking at the promises that God makes to the likes of you and me, uh, to his people Israel, um, to the church, uh, the promises that he fulfills in Jesus. And we're seeing how those promises, in particular the ones that are set in covenant form, which is where, as we were thinking last week, God voluntarily binds himself to a sort of formal agreement written in blood, as it were, um, where those covenants and promises, what they tell us about God and how they help us to live for him. And um, last week we were thinking about Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Abraham really the uh, foundational figure in the whole of the Old Testament, that person on whom God's people are built, to whom God's primary covenant promise is given. God says to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15, look, I am going to make you and your descendants into a great nation, not for the sake of you, but in order that the rest of the world might know that they are loved, that in order that the rest of the world might know um, my covenant love for them. And that's a problem for Abraham and for Sarah, because at the time he's at least 75, they are childless, and so it is somewhat surprising to find that they're being um, offered um, a child, told that they will receive a child. There, there are all sorts of ups and downs along the way, but in the chapter before what we're going to read now, uh, God gives them the, the, the fulfillment of this promise, or at least the, the sign it's going to be fulfilled. He gives to them a child in Genesis chapter 21. And Sarah, having laughed in sort of sarcasm at the original promise, now laughs with joy, according to Genesis 21. And in fact, Isaac is named after that word laughter, because God has filled me with laughter. She says. The odd thing is that actually this is the point at which Abraham's faith is going to be most in danger. This is the point at which Abraham's faith most needs to be proved and tested. Because there can be, too, there can be such a thing as too much of a good thing. And that's the story that we're going to have a look at. Um, it's an odd story, this, Genesis 22. It is perhaps one of the most surprising and all the surprising pages of the, the Old and New Testament. If we read it properly, it's perhaps one of the ones that really should stop us in our tracks and ask big questions about the God that we worship. Why would he say this sort of thing? Why would he put somebody to test in this way? Uh, if you already know the end of the story, try to put that on one side. And as you hear me read it, try and get inside it. How does this feel? If you'd never heard this story before, and this is what you heard about God and about Abraham, how would this story make you feel as you go along? And what does it tell us about the God who makes promises, but also who tests our faith? Genesis 22. Sometime later, this is after Isaac was born, maybe a few years later. God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. 
Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On the face of it, this is a simply monstrous story. It's a grotesque sounding caricature of the sort of tyrant God who plays with his children. How could you take an incredible gift, not just any old gift, a special prize somehow, but an only son, a child only or otherwise, and say, go, kill. How could, why would God do that? Well, in a sense, it's meant to be there as a trip hazard. I think there's all sorts of stories in the Bible that are deliberately meant to trip us up. We shouldn't flatten out the bumps in the road of the Bible. Anybody who says the Bible is a boring book has simply not tripped up enough over those things that are meant to shock us. They're meant to make us stop and take note. This story is meant to do exactly that. But in many ways, it would have been much less shocking for Abraham and for for the first readers or hearers of the story. And that at least gives us one angle on one of the things that you and I need to learn from this. You see, it was commonplace in those days, not simply amongst Abraham's immediate tribe, but in the tribes around the Canaanite religions, for example, that we have decent archaeological evidence for, that the first fruits, that is the first portion of your crops, of your herds, and yes, of your family you would devote to the God, small or capital G, as a way of reminding you and of declaring to God that the whole thing belonged to God. 
So you would take the first sheaves of corn, you would burn them on the altar as a way of saying to God, all of my crops belong to you. You would take your firstborn lamb and you would kill the lamb in a sacrifice and it would be a visual aid way of saying, all of this comes from you. And in one way or another, you would devote your firstborn in this culture, son, to the Lord as a way of saying to God, my whole family belongs to you. Now, it was fairly extreme, but actually in Canaanite religion, there are examples within the literature that has survived of commands. Do you know, I'm really sorry, that is my um, phone that went off earlier on, and it's just gone off again. I hope it's telling me that we won the Ryder Cup. Did we? That's splendid, good. Uh, There were examples where the gods would say to the people, if you want a good crop next year, if you want your um, beasts to be fertile and to produce many young, if you want to win this battle against this great foe, then go to great extreme. If you really want to show that you are serious with me, then take your eldest son and sacrifice him. It's one of the things actually later on in the Old Testament that the prophets rail against some of the pagan nations around them, that they even go so far as to burn their own children. Those were some of the pagan religions that were being replaced. Here's the thing. For Abraham, then, God saying, go, kill, was not utterly unexpected, not utterly outrageous, except that by now, Abraham should have known that that was outrageous and unexpected. Because part of the point of this story is that God doesn't let him go through with it. The point is, God is saying to Abraham, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. You know, you've taken me at face value. You've gone off with the wood and the fire and the knife and you've bound him up. But you need to know that I'm not like those other gods. I'm not going to be capricious and dictatorial and, and cruel and tell you to give to me in that way what I've given to you. I'm not like them. Now maybe Abraham had got that. Do you notice twice in what he says to his servants and then what he says to Isaac? He implies that he does believe. I I don't know what level. I don't know whether it's somewhere over here which is just hoping it's going to be okay. Somewhere over here which says I know it's going to be okay. But somewhere between those two he says we will go and worship. And then he says to his servants and we will come back. Whether that's hope, whether that's certainty. And then he says to Isaac, God will provide the sacrifice. I don't think it's the whole story, but part of what we need to hear tonight is actually the reminder not to make assumptions about what God is like. Not to simply drink in from the world in which we live assumptions about God that are simply lies, that are simply not true. God is not like them. God is not like people assume that he is. Let me give one little example, and then I want to just pile into what, what I, the, the other half of what I want to say tonight. The, this one example, which I think comes again and again and again, is that Christians have somehow taken in, we so easily take in, this assumption that God um, zaps people when they get things wrong. So I've now lost track of the number of people who at some point have said to me, in the midst of telling me about something terrible that's happened to them or something terrible that's happening to their family, and they, some point in that conversation, say, Richard, I must have done something terribly wrong. I must have done something terribly wrong. 
as if God is the sort of God who zaps people when they mess up. That somehow the bad things that happen in our life are because we mess up. Whereas the Bible says, not a bit of it. That's not the way it goes. We live in a fallen, broken, messy world. Things do happen. But not because God is looking at individuals and going, right, you know, you've messed up, so I'm going to zap you. Now, that's worth a sermon in itself, but it's a good example of an assumption we drink in from the world around us, and we attach to God, and God says, I'm not like that. So he's saying to Abraham, you may be able to start to get your head around what sort of God would command you in that sort of capricious, cruel way to kill your only son, to kill any child. I'm not like that. But why does he go through? Why does, why does God say it at all? Because he could have simply said to Abraham, by the way, I'm not like that. Why does he let him go through this whole journey of, is it three days? And then he's got to go up to the mountain, which takes another bit of time. And then he's got to get to the point of having to steal himself to do what he thinks. Well, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe God does want me to do this. Why does he let him go all that way? Because our faith and Abraham's faith was in most danger when we have the most from God. Abraham was in the greatest danger of tripping up faith-wise exactly at the point where God had fulfilled his promises to him. It's far more dangerous place to be than in the waiting. Let me try and illustrate what I mean. Um, Children's literature is full of wonderful caricatures and grotesques of spoilt children. Um, If you know the Harry Potter stories at all, you'll know Dudley. And uh, is it Dudley Dursley? What's this? Dursley? Dursleys, that's right, thank you. I see all the nods. I can now tell he's read Harry Potter. Um, and uh, Dudley is this gr- oh, grotesque oaf of a boy, uh, as written in the books, sort of if you've seen the films. And, and he is just horrid. And he's basically pretty clear that he's horrid because he has been spoilt, poor chap, actually, you'd have to say, to within an inch of his life. There's one glorious tantrum he throws at one particular birthday because he's in danger of having not what, no more presents than he had the previous year. I think numbered 35 or something outrageous. And he goes completely off the deep end simply because he's meant to have more presents this year than he did last year. And if you've seen the film, it's a glorious bit of, of chewing the scenery acting. Uh, if you're into your more, slightly more classic children's literature, Roald Dahl, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Is it Veruca Salt? Who's incredibly spoiled. And, you know, Daddy, I want, a, I want an Oompa Loompa. Get me an Oompa Loompa. Sorry, if that means nothing to you, go and read Charlie and Chocolate Factory because you're missing out. Um, here's the point. We know in children's literature, because we've all read them at one way or another, that there are these grotesques which actually do connect with a reality in life, that it is possible to give too much to children. It is possible to spoil a child, to use that now quite common phrase, by giving good gifts. It's not that the gifts themselves become good, but too much of them gets in the way of what is meant to sustain them, which is relationship. Now, of course, it's easy to read in children's literature and to think about children. Of course, the point of great children's literature is it tends to open a door on the whole of human life. And any relationship can be spoilt that way. Any good relationship is meant to not be based on gifts and presents and stuff. Those gifts and presents and stuff are meant simply to express the relationship that is there, not to replace it. You can smother a love relationship with too much stuff. 
We know it's possible. We may not attempt it very often, but it is possible. Here's the thing for Abraham. Abraham, in Genesis 21, has received this gift that he and Sarah had longed for in, say, 50 or 60 years of married life, followed by another 20, 25 years of waiting for God to fulfill his promises. That's a lot of waiting. And when God begins to fulfill his promise and give them a child, that's the point at which God has to test his faith. Why? Because actually that's the point at which he's in danger of loving the gift more than the giver of basing his faith on the promise, not the promiser, of enjoying the blessing more than the one who gives the blessing. The danger is that he will be spoilt by God's generosity, that he will begin to put the weight of his life not on what he believes God is like, but on what God does for him. It's not actually that Isaac is a, is a bad gift. Here is the most precious of gifts. It's not that God is going to take that gift away, because he doesn't. He's not a capricious, evil uh, God. He's a heavenly father who loves to give good gifts. It's that he doesn't want his gifts to spoil our faith. We may not have an Isaac that on its own would get in the way. But the Bible is full of warnings of how the more we have, the harder faith is. Jesus says how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It is so difficult, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Have you ever wondered about that statement? It goes all the way back to here. Because the point is not that wealth is evil, not a bit of it. The Bible says over and over again, the stuff we have, we say thank you to God for. We don't say this is evil and rotten and nasty. We say thank you. Good gifts from God. The problem is the more stuff we have, the the more we are tempted to put our faith, our trust, uh, the weight of our lives on what we've got, not on who gives it. On the gift, not the giver. The promise, not the promiser. The blessing, not the one who blesses. And so for Abraham, what God does is say to Abraham, what would your faith be like if I took that away? Would you still love me? Would you still serve me? Would you still follow me? Would you still obey me? It's not a bad thought experiment, maybe a bit unnerving, to think about the things that we hold most precious. Let me say one more time, not because God holds it like a threat over us. Abraham was in this unique position. He was about to establish the people of God. He had to go through a refining process probably none of us ever have to go through. But to play the what if. What if I didn't have all the stuff that I have? What if my life wasn't like it is? Would I still be able to say of God, he loves me? He's the lover lover of my soul. He's the giver of good gifts. I trust him with who I am. Abraham has to come face to face with the possibility that God will take away his most precious gift. And that's what the testing involves. Not the actual taking away, but that sense of what if. Uh, There's a very interesting statement in here. I wonder what you make of it. Verse 12. God says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
That phrase about fearing God, um, worth just pausing on for a moment, because to fear God in the Bible isn't about being scared of God. It's about saying, God is my highest, um, he's highest up the pecking order. I can't think of a better way of putting it. He's, he's higher than all. He's higher than my needs, than my wants, than all the stuff that's on my, on my list. He's right up there. But God says, now I know. Did he not know before? It's a really interesting question. Did God not know in advance what Abraham was going to do? And if he didn't, is that not a problem? It is for me. I believe in a God who's omniscient, the formal word meaning knowing all, past, present, and future. I believe God holds the whole of time and eternity in his hands. How can he turn around to Abraham and say, well, now I know, which must imply logically, and before I didn't. This isn't the only passage in Scripture where God, or in, later on, Jesus, says similar things. I think it means something like this. There is a difference between, because of the way God relates to us, what God knows about us, if you like, about the theory of our hearts, the way we tick, what we're capable of, the potential that's there, and the knowledge that comes from us actually living that out with him. You take a rock that's got um, gold in it, you know, out of the ground. If you do the right sort of analysis of it, if you break it down, you may know exactly what's there. But there's a difference between that and when you've gone through the process of crushing and sifting and then melting and refining and scooping off the impurities and ending up with, yeah, the gold you already knew was there, but now you know it because you look on it. It's real. It's brought to life. And that's what God does with faith. It's not that he doesn't know Abraham's going to be okay. That's why um, later in the New Testament uh, we hear God will never test you beyond what you are able to bear. He does know what we're able to bear. He does know that Abraham's going to be okay. But he knows it now in the reality of us living it out. He knows Abraham needs this. It shouldn't be about theory. It needs to be about the reality of a life lived before him. And he knows it personally because we're not test tubes. We're not lab rats. We're people that he relates to. He tests Abraham's faith, not because he doesn't know and is worried for Abraham, but because actually he knows what Abraham is capable of and he needs Abraham to know that too. It needs to be brought out. It needs to be refined. And part of that is testing. I need to land this plane. Um, but I just want... My personal experience of this um, doesn't involve fear of death or losing stuff um, but you've heard me tell of the the year before I came here of um, a year when I was unemployed um, a year where six months in increasingly convinced that actually the thing and it, this bit may sound very odd to you but the thing that I had honestly believed since I was about 15 that God was calling me to which was to be a vicar of a local church I, that's what I believed God that's what God had for me and I got six months into that year of unemployment, having been a curate, and started to have to think, hang on, just because I'm a follower of Jesus doesn't mean everything works out okay. I know that. I've preached that. Just because I'm a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that all the things that I think and believe about my life are going to work out perfectly. I know that. I've never really had to face it before. What if it doesn't work out okay this year? What if... I'm never going to get to 
be a vicar. Maybe I need to go and do something completely different. Maybe I've messed up. Maybe I have taken a wrong turn, turned down something I shouldn't have turned down. And we're, you know, we're living in a part of the world I don't know, living uh, not in my own home, not earning a living, and I've simply got to take a U-turn and go back a different way. What if life is never going to work out the way I thought it was going to? And this is what was happening. God's saying to me, Richard, who are you when nobody's watching? Who are you when you're not preaching? Who are you when you're not a curate or a vicar or a youth worker and the things I've done in the past? Who are you when you are simply somebody else's son-in-law, that's what I was known as for a full year, uh, in a part of the world that I didn't know, not even going to an Anglican church where they would have any clue, you know, who I was? The question was, Richard, are you going to follow me when you might never be the thing that you thought you were called to? Now, simply because I'm standing here and it all worked out fine isn't the point. That's not the point. And the point of this story is not so much that it all worked out fine. The point is that God actually expects that sort of faith. That is the faith that actually makes a difference in our lives. Not that's based on stuff God gives us, prayers God answers, lives that all work out beautifully, but a faith that is based on who he is. And actually, in the overall scheme of things, in, the, in time and eternity, the Bible says that God is, what's the old way of putting it, no man's debtor. We're never going to be able to get to the end of time and look back and say, God, you owe me, you messed it up. But there's plenty of bits in between that are going to feel grotty. Where we're going to really think, God, you've left me now. You've, you've not done what you promised. Just as it must have felt like for Abraham on the way to that mountain. The question was, will you trust me, says God? Will you trust me, not the stuff I give you? Will you believe in me, not simply the promises that get fulfilled in front of your eyes? It's a difficult one, isn't it? But the promise is this. The promise is that God isn't a capricious, difficult, unpleasant trickster of a God. God doesn't play tricks on us, but he does at times test us to show us what's there. And we have to hold on to him, not just what he gives us and to trust in him and who he is, not simply the times when we get the proof, if you like, in the answered prayers and the things that work out well. Abraham did find that Isaac was given back to him. He did rename the mountain, God will provide, and he does, and he will. But in the middle of the difficult times, we're to put our hands in him and to trust him for the stuff we don't understand and that we don't get. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Abraham. Thank you for the way in which you tested his faith, you refined it, you brought out the gold that was there. Thank you for the way in which you did provide But thank you too for the way in which the faith you'd planted in him wasn't just about the stuff you gave him, but about who you were. We lay before you the stuff we have, the stuff we couldn't imagine, couldn't bear the thought of being without. And we say to you, we still believe in all the ups and downs of life. You are the God who provides and you are the God who loves us and the God who promises good things to us. Amen.